passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If, uh, if you noticed the, the sermon title in your Bible app, Entrusted with the Gospel. Uh, I love that word, entrusted. It's a powerful one. To be entrusted with something, it really communicates a number of things. Two things I just want to point out. First, it makes a statement about the value of the object, right? That this is something that is worth valuing because it is being entrusted to you. So when Crystal and I lived in the Chicago suburbs, one of the uh, families that, that was in that church that we attended, uh, there was this five-year-old girl, and she drew me a picture and, uh, and gave it to me and asked if I would keep it. And I, I readily agreed to that. And of course, by all, all accounts, it wasn't a great picture. Uh, this wasn't a child prodigy we're talking about here. Uh, but I knew that she was serious. She was serious about me keeping that picture. And so I kept my word. I, I kept that picture because it was valuable to her. She had entrusted something that was valuable to her, and therefore it was valuable to me. And sure enough, when we were packing up seven, eight years ago to move here, this family came over to our apartment, and the first thing that this little girl asked me when she entered into our apartment was, you still have that picture I drew for you. It was something that was valuable to her, and, and she wanted to make sure that I was, I was valuing it, I was taking care of it, I was stewarding it the way that she thought it deserved. Of course, being entrusted with something doesn't just make a statement about the value of that object. It also makes a statement about the person that you are entrusting something with as well. It can be a picture, a family heirloom. It makes a statement about the person that you are giving that object to, you are entrusting it to. So by giving me this picture, this little girl was making a statement about me. She thought that I was someone who was worthy of taking good care of this, that I would actually keep my word, that I would do a good job taking care of what was valuable to her. And so when this little girl asked me at our apartment all those years ago, hey, do you still have that picture I drew for you? I was able to say absolutely and point right at the drawer where it was located. And if I wouldn't have been able to do that, it would have been devastating for her. The Bible uses the language of, of entrusted as well, but it's not with physical objects, it's with the, uh, the faith itself, the legacy of our faith. Paul, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says this, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So here in this verse, Paul is saying that to be entrusted with the gospel first means that God has considered Paul and his fellow co-workers in the gospel worthy of carrying the gospel forth. But then also he's saying that they take this task seriously, that this is something that is valuable, and so they consider this a very significant, heavy charge. And this morning's passage does something very similar as well. Remember the context of 2 Timothy, the book that we're in. In 2 Timothy, Paul is nearing the end of his life, and he picks up his pen to write 2 Timothy. And as he does so, his focus is on preparing the next generation and the next generation, and the next generation, all the way down to us, preparing the church for his absence. See, Paul and the first generation of church leaders, when they, uh, when they were entrusted with the gospel, the church flourished. It spread throughout the known world, and now we're seeing the passing of the torch. 
What about the second generation of the church? Will they be faithful to the gospel as well? Will they take seriously the charge that they have been entrusted with the gospel? Timothy and fellow co-workers have already been entrusted with the gospel. Will they continue to be faithful to it? Or will the church fail? And that's what this morning's text focuses on. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 through 18, Paul is writing to Timothy and he tells him that you have been entrusted with the gospel. And the reason why you have been entrusted with the gospel is for the next generation. And the same thing is true for us this morning as well, that each and every one of us, if we are found in Christ Jesus, if we have a genuine faith, to use the language that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 1, that we have been entrusted with the gospel for the next generation. God has a plan to reach more people to the ends of the earth with the gospel, and it doesn't rest with angelic hosts. It rests with the church. Paul shares this declaration in a couple of different ways. First, he looks at his own life, then he looks at Timothy's life, and then he looks to the example and really a warning of a couple of different men in the church in Asia Minor. Let's work our way through this text as we consider these three different areas. And, and we're going to see that there's really three instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy in this text. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 11. He writes this, For which I was appointed, and this is for which, this is a reference to the gospel. For the gospel I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So here is Paul. He's writing from prison. He's, he's been abandoned by nearly all of the churches that he has planted in, in Asia Minor. All the people that he has raised up to lead those churches after he is gone. And he's writing to Timothy. And, 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 and in this moment, you can, you can imagine that Paul is, is led to some introspection. He's led to introspection because of all of this abandonment of, of everyone. And maybe he's asking these questions, am I doing something wrong? Have I messed up? Have, have I been the one who has led to this mass exodus of, of the churches that I've planted, this mass exodus of all of these leaders? Do I need to repent of anything? And yet Paul also says in verse 3, oh, I have, a, I have a clear conscience. And it's because of that clear conscience that Paul can look at his own life, his own example, his own commitments, even his own current circumstances, and give those to Timothy as an example. Recall back in verse 8, Paul is associating abandonment of him. If you abandon Paul, you are in essence abandoning the gospel. 
He says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice that connection there between abandoning the testimony of our Lord and abandoning me, the Lord's prisoner. Paul is, is saying, don't turn your back on the gospel. You have been entrusted with the gospel. And you have countless opportunities to turn your back on it. You have countless opportunities to walk away. But Timothy, don't do it because it is not worth it. Don't turn your back on the gospel. Recall how Paul refers to and describes the gospel in verses 9 and 10. We looked at these two verses briefly last week. He says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here is Paul. He's, he's languishing in prison. He's awaiting execution, and yet he continues to trust God fully, that God is completely in charge. God is completely sovereign over his life. And rather than seeing his suffering as incompatible with the gospel, this belief that God is completely in charge of our circumstances, he sees that even though God could relieve my suffering at any moment, he instead sees the sovereignty of God the lordship of God as the anchor that will help him to endure in the midst of the storms of his suffering. Paul here, he, he emphasizes God's calling in his life, the purpose that God has in the gospel. And this calling, this purpose, these aren't things that have, have all of a sudden become void due to the fact that Paul is now suffering. Consider Paul's reflections on his own life, his own ministry, his sufferings in verses 11 and 12 for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Let's go ahead and pause right there. So here is Paul. He's recognizing that God has this unique calling on his life. And as I read these words from the apostle Paul, I just, I can't help but wonder if Paul is thinking back to his own calling, his own conversion when he was brought from death to life, his, his journey to faith. If you are familiar with the book of Acts, Paul goes from throwing people in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus to being thrown in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Paul goes from approving of the execution of people who are proclaiming, telling people about Jesus to actually being in this place where he's about to be executed for telling people about Jesus. Becoming this apostle this preacher, this teacher of the gospel, that's not a part of Paul's life plan. It's not something that Paul wrote down as a part of his five-year goals and says, you know what, I want to be this when I graduate or when I enter into the workforce. He doesn't choose this calling. He says that he has been appointed to it. The risen Jesus, the ascended Jesus, he appears to one of his disciples named Ananias. And he describes what Paul's calling is like, what his plans for Paul will be. It says this in Acts chapter 9, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus had a plan for Paul. And it wasn't at all what Paul's plan for his own life was. It was a plan that actually landed Paul in prison, facing execution. Paul sees this connection. He's not, he's not, disillu- or he's not a, under some illusion that this isn't the case. Paul sees that if he would have stayed on the path that he was on, if God hadn't intervened into his life with a special calling, if God hadn't entrusted him with the gospel, then Paul would probably still be living in Jerusalem. He'd still probably be working his way through the ranks of the spiritually elite of Judaism. And yet here is Paul, and if you ask him, why are you in prison? He would say, it's because of Jesus. And when he says that, he wouldn't just mean, it's because I've been telling people about Jesus. He would be meaning, no, it's because this is a part of Jesus' plan for me. That I'm exactly where God wants me to be. That this was a part of his plan when he entrusted me with the gospel. See, here's Paul. He's, he's following in the footsteps of his master Jesus, isn't he? He's following in the footsteps of Jesus who sees obedience to God's plan sometimes means suffering, sometimes means hardship, and yet far from getting bitter, frustrated, disillusioned with his, life, uh, with his lot in life, far from saying, you know, this just isn't fair, Paul uses some of the most precious language of this text. Notice what he says next. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. It would have been so easy for Paul to to succumb to shame in this moment. In fact, everything that Paul is going through in this moment would have have been a, a way for him to feel and experience shame. He loses his freedom. One by one, his churches, his friends begin to abandon him. Paul is left with nothing. Nothing except for Jesus. And here is Paul, and he points to himself, and he urges Timothy not to turn his back on the gospel. And and notice that he gives two reasons here. The first one is this, because I know Jesus. This is what he means when he says, for I know him whom I have believed. Notice that he doesn't say, for I know what I have believed believed. Here is Paul. He's facing suffering, and when he is faced with the temptation to turn his back on Jesus, he doesn't run back to theological principles. He doesn't run back to, he doesn't comfort his heart with works of theology. He doesn't find solace by saying, well, at least I'm theologically accurate. No, he looks at Jesus That's the place where he finds life-giving hope. That's the place where his spiritual backbone to endure this suffering, endure this hardship, it's because he knows Jesus. For, For Paul, all of this would not at all be worth it if it weren't for Jesus. A few years before this moment, Paul is in prison in Rome again, or a different time, and he expresses that his hope and his joy aren't found in his circumstances. They aren't found in anything else but the prospect of seeing Jesus one day says this in the book of Philippians for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better 
I love Paul's words here in verse 12 when he says, for I know whom I have believed. You see, it would make perfect sense for Paul to say this, or for, for Peter to say this, or John, or any of the 12 disciples to make this sort of statement. They'd walk with Jesus. They'd, they'd learn from Jesus. They'd talked with Jesus. They'd had meals with Jesus. They'd laughed with Jesus. They'd cried with Jesus. They'd sat at Jesus' feet. They'd laid their heads on Jesus' shoulder. They have all of this life experience with Jesus. So if they were to say, I know him who I have believed, it would make absolute sense for them to say, my desire is to depart and be with Jesus, to be reunited with him. It makes perfect sense. And yet not Paul. As far as we know, Paul's only interaction with Jesus is in Acts chapter 8, or excuse me, Acts chapter 9, the risen, exalted Jesus appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We don't know if there's any other uh, interactions between the two of them that aren't recorded. And if they, if they were, they, they certainly weren't anything like what the other disciples experience in their lives. And yet for Paul, his experience of Jesus was so real, it was so tangible, as he fellowshiped with Jesus through prayer, reading the Bible, his devotion is so sweet that Paul can use this exact same language that any of the other disciples would have been able to say because they had walked with Jesus. For Paul, the very prospect of turning his back on Jesus, on the gospel, is unthinkable. For I know whom I have believed. This is Jesus who has been with him through thick and thin. He's the one that, that Paul longs to see more than anyone else. And for Paul, this is a, a question. He's like, how could, I, how could I possibly be ashamed of Jesus? How could I possibly turn my back on the message that he is, uh, of what he has done for me? How could I possibly shrink away from that sweet fellowship that I experience that he offers to me? For I know whom I have believed. But if that weren't enough, Paul gives us a second reason at the end of verse 12 why turning his back on the gospel is unthinkable. He writes this, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Why will he not turn his back on Jesus? Well, first, it's because he knows Jesus and, and he loves Jesus. And the second thing is, is he has confidence that Jesus himself will guard the gospel. Remember Paul's context here. Paul is in prison. People are abandoning him in droves. It would be so easy for him to, to wonder if God is going to actually preserve the gospel for the next generation. If there will be anyone left to carry the gospel forward for the next generation. It would be so easy to, to wonder, to give in to the temptation, to believe that faithfulness is going to die with Paul. It would be so easy for him to sink into despair, but Paul comforts himself with the belief and the confidence that even though people are abandoning him, even though churches are abandoning him, Jesus will never abandon the gospel. That Jesus' plans to use the church to spread the good news of what he has done for all of humanity. That Jesus will never let that fail. 
that that mission will go on and it will flourish, that Jesus will continue to build his church until the ends of the earth hear the message of the gospel. And if Jesus won't let that message fail, if Jesus will never abandon the message of the gospel and of the salvation that is offered in the gospel, how on earth could Paul abandon it himself? Paul lifts himself up as an example. He lifts himself up as an example to Timothy and to us, not as a form of of self-exaltation, but as an example of what it really means to follow Jesus faithfully. What it really means to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, even when it means suffering for the gospel. To turn his back on the gospel is unthinkable because it means turning his back on Jesus. So here is Paul. He says, For I know whom I have believed. Don't turn your back on the gospel, Timothy. Paul doesn't stop there with his own life. To the example of his own life, he, he speaks directly to Timothy in verses 13 and 14. That's our second instruction in this text. For those who have been entrusted with the gospel, it is simply this. Cling to the gospel. Cling to the gospel. This is the natural overflow. It's the result of a commitment not to turn our backs on the gospel. It is actually to run to the gospel, to hold fast to the gospel. This charge to cling to the gospel broken into two separate commands here in verses 13 and 14. Let's take a look at each individually. Verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, when we think of the concept of following in the Bible, we think of the idea of follow someone else's example. Follow someone else's example, especially the example of Jesus. That is what Peter has in mind in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter is, is writing to the church, and, and he says, I want you to focus on Jesus. I want you to focus on the example of how he lived when he suffered unjustly. So it might surprise us when Paul uses similar language of of following Jesus, and yet he doesn't urge Timothy to follow his example. He says, instead, I want you to follow my teaching, my commitment to sound words, my commitment to teaching the gospel. Remember this relationship between Paul and Timothy. It's been going on for a decade and a half. For about 15 years, they've traveled together. They have ministered together. Timothy would have had plenty of opportunities to see, to witness Paul's commitment to the gospel, to to sound teaching and his preaching in all those years. And Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, hey, Timothy, uh, you have been entrusted to the gospel or with the gospel just exactly like me. And if you're going to be faithful, If you're going to be faithful in my absence, what I want you to do, what I need you to do is to follow the example that I have set for you. Follow my example, the priorities in the gospel, my commitment to the gospel with your teaching. Timothy, many people are abandoning the gospel. They're they're abandoning me. Many more aren't abandoning the gospel wholeheartedly. They're just watering down the gospel. They're compromising the truths of the gospel so that way it is a little bit more palpable for those who are around them. And if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to follow the example of 
of this commitment to sound teaching that I have set for you, if you're going to hand off the torch of, of faithfulness to the, the church in the next generation, you have to cling to the sound words of the gospel. You can't miss that. You saw it in me. Now, now I need you to live it out with your life as well. For Paul, theological accuracy, it, it matters. At the same time, it's not the only thing that matters. Years ago, I uh, encountered a man who believed that his unique calling, and I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, his unique calling was to, in his words, guard the church from heresy within. And that's a, that's a really good thing, but I soon realized after spending some time with him, I realized that when he says he was guarding the church from heresy within, what he was actually meaning is he just wanted to be a bully. He wanted to tell everyone where they were wrong, never tell anyone where they were right. He was so consumed with the minutia of the faith, splitting hairs on things that, while important, aren't things that decide whether you're a believer or not. Splitting hairs on, on things like baptism and, and Calvinism or Arminianism and all of these different things. And, and he just came across as a bully. And Paul is writing here and, and he tells us that the antidote to that type of mindset isn't to become wishy-washy. It isn't to, to not have any sort of conviction on what the Bible says. Notice what he says in verse 13 at the end. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that those who have been entrusted with the gospel, those who have been given the charge of carrying the gospel forward to the next generation, to carry this banner of the mission of the church forward, we have to be fully committed to theological accuracy because if we're not, then we are absolutely rudderless, but we have to do so with a genuine faith and we have to do so with love. Paul touches on this in another passage about the importance of love in our pursuit of theological accuracy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says this, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love is of no value. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, cling to the gospel. Do so by clinging to the truth of the gospel and teach that truth of the gospel. But then he gives another aspect of this charge in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In verse 13, Paul says, follow my teaching. In verse 14, he says, guard the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. The good deposit that is entrusted to Timothy is a reference to the gospel itself. Remember the context of, of 2 Timothy. Paul is encouraging Timothy in his role in church leadership, in the mission of God. He says that you're going to have to do this soon without me. And what a great, is there a greater way to, to encourage Timothy than by reminding Timothy of the good gift of the gospel, but also that God himself through the Holy Spirit, will be with Timothy to defend the gospel. The good news is that Timothy, not left alone in defending and guarding the gospel, just as Jesus is going to guard the gospel who is entrusted to Paul, 
In verse 12, the Holy Spirit who dwells within Timothy is going to guard the gospel alongside of Timothy. That Timothy is going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if Paul is saying, you're not alone. Even when I am gone, which is coming soon, it doesn't rest upon you alone to guard the gospel. God is going to be with you because God dwells within you. And that is a comforting thought that the Holy Spirit will be with you to protect the gospel. So cling to the gospel. Don't turn your back on the gospel. Cling to the gospel. Universal truths for us, no matter our role in the church. And it's not true just for those who have this unique role of, of teaching and preaching. And that's what Paul makes apparent in the final few verses here. He's, he, he dives specifically into two examples. The example of this man named Phygelus and then the example of this man named Onesiphorus. Paul uses this example of his own life as, as a way to provide instruction to Timothy. He gives instruction to Timothy just by giving him a command, and then he turns to the example of these men. Join in the work of the gospel. Join in the work of the gospel. Take a look at verse 15, where we see a warning. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So we don't know a lot about Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know the specifics of what it looked like for them to turn their back, turn away from Paul. Uh, we do know a couple things. We can conclude a couple things, though. First, it, it's that they were in Asia Minor. That's exactly where, where Timothy was as well. So they're in modern-day Turkey, and they're serving in the churches there alongside Timothy, who is in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And second, they would have been known to Timothy. It would make no sense for Paul to reference these two if, if Timothy didn't know who they were. They probably had actually worked with Timothy and Paul in the past, and yet now they have turned their back on the gospel. So why? Why, why, did, why did they decide to, to turn away from Paul? Well, we saw this, we looked at this last week a little bit. It's because of Paul's suffering and his imprisonment. And these two, they, they symbolically represent this mass exodus of the church throughout Asia Minor. These churches that Paul has planted that are abandoning him. And he's, he's referring to these as they begin to dis distance themselves from Paul. Remember what we said on this topic last week. News of Paul's imprisonment begins to, to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And people begin to see this as a black mark on the church. They begin to conclude that Paul's imprisonment isn't so much for the gospel as much as it is because Paul is a little too hard-nosed. He's a little too uncompromising. He's a little too unwilling to work with people. In fact, Paul is just, he's bad publicity for the church, the fact that he has landed in prison. And so people began to, to step back from Paul, abandon Paul. They distance themselves from Paul. People like Phygelus and Hermogenes in this passage. And Paul sees this abandonment for what it really is. He says, let's not, let's not pretend that this is anything that it isn't. It's, it's watering down the gospel. It's a form of abandoning the gospel. It's not following the pattern of sound words, what he talks about earlier. Paul is suffering, and now people are beginning to abandon 
Paul, they're pulling out of the gospel mission because it might mean that they have to suffer as well. They're saying that the cost is too high, that Paul has set the bar too high, and God surely wouldn't ask for this much from me. It's a temptation that has existed throughout the church's history. Throughout the ages of the church, this is the temptation that Christians will always face. And it's true no matter your age. It's as true as it is for the school student as it is for the elderly person. I can still remember very easily, really well, of friends, people I thought were friends, overhearing them saying to one another, I can't wait until I get to go to college so that way I don't have to be around people like Jordan anymore. You didn't have to be around me right then either. It didn't really bother me. I've sat at diners and I've heard elderly people using some of the most vulgar, profane language while I'm trying to do a Bible study two stalls down. This idea that you can, you can hold to the gospel, but you can water it down, you can pick and choose what you like, is a temptation that we will always face. It is never ending. And that's why Paul's words here to Timothy are so important, that we have to steal our hearts to cling to the gospel, to not turn our back on the gospel, to join in the work of the gospel, so that way we are ready when inconvenience comes. But Paul doesn't just give an example that it's a warning of Phygelus and Hermogenes. He also gives an example of what this looks like. A commendation. Onisphorus here in verses 16 through 18. Let's start in verse 15 again. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onisphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So here is Paul. He holds forth Onesphorus as this example to Timothy. But notice what Onesphorus' role is in living out, in joining in, the work of the gospel, as he is entrusted with the gospel. It's very different than Timothy's. It's very different than, than Paul's own charge. Timothy has been given a charge, and that is to preach the word. For 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells him as much. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But that doesn't seem to be the case here for Onesphorus. Onesphorus uh, is faithful to the gospel in a different way. He remains faithful through refreshing Paul, is the language that Paul uses. In other words, he, he meets Paul's physical needs. But not just his physical needs, he also does it by providing fellowship and community and relationships. Actually tells us, Paul writes, hey, you know what, he, he traveled from Ephesus all the way to Rome, seven, eight hundred miles. He traveled so that way he could be an encouragement to me. He's not preaching. He's not teaching. But he's joined in the work of the gospel in the way that God has called him to serve. This past week, Pastor Stephen and I, we were talking 
um, about one of the challenges of preaching through 2 Timothy. It's a very personal letter. It's written from one church leader to another church leader, one pastor to another church, or another pastor, one person who preaches to another person who preaches. And in one sense, it's, it's a great book for me. It's, it's really, really convicting for me. And yet I also know that not every single person who attends here, that that's the case for them, that they, they aren't going to be a pastor. They aren't going to be a preacher. They're not going to be in a role that, that does all of this teaching. And so what God has decided to do in his infinite wisdom is include these few verses on Onisphorus here to help us see that it's not just those who have a, a calling to, to preach who have been entrusted with the gospel. But it's everyone who has this genuine faith in the Lord Jesus who has been entrusted with the gospel message. It was to, to join in the, the message of the gospel. The work of the gospel with our lives. To be like Onisphorus. To refresh to encourage, to, to do exactly what God has called you to do as you serve in the church. All of God's people have been entrusted with the gospel, and that's going to look different for different roles. But Scripture also makes it clear that those who teach, they'll be held to a, a greater standard in case they abuse that position. In case they don't hold forth the sound words of the gospel that Paul refers to here. But everyone who has a saving faith in the Lord Jesus has a part to play in the mission of the church. You have been entrusted with the gospel. What will you do with it? That little girl that I mentioned, uh, she gave me that picture. She's now a high schooler. Uh, I actually kept that picture for years until I realized she'd probably be old enough that she wouldn't be offended anymore if I tossed it away. I remember the last time I, I had a chance to, to meet, uh, to see her, I actually asked her if it would be okay if I made a little bit of room in my drawer uh, for the drawings of, of a new five-year-old, my, my son. And, uh, and she said, well, actually, she didn't say anything. She just laughed. She, she thought it was ridiculous that I had kept that thing for, for so long. And maybe it was, but I, I told her I, I, take th I take seriously the things that have been entrusted to me. And a picture, we take that seriously. Shouldn't we also take seriously the gospel that has been entrusted to us? You have been entrusted with the gospel. What will you do with it? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the message of the gospel. Help us to be faithful, to have wisdom to see how you are calling us to serve and to use our gifts to further the mission of the church for another generation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.